Do you have a Christian worldview or has your philosophy of life been tainted by the wisdom of the world? What is our best guide for life? The Word of God or the philosophies of intellectuals? And what does the Bible mean when it says that the foolishness of God is wiser than men? For an in-depth discussion of these questions and others, stay tuned. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end-time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to another broadcast of Christ and Prophecy. I'm delighted to have with me this week two special guests. One is Dennis Pollock, the other Nathan Jones. Dennis, as many of you well know, is a former colleague of mine who was with our ministry for 12 years before the Lord called him into the establishment of his own ministry called Spirit of Grace. And Dennis, as I understand it, that ministry is primarily one that's focused on evangelism and healing and on training of native ministers around the world. And you're right now focused Focusing your efforts on Africa and uh, I guess it's the Philippines and uh, India, right? Right. The Lord has uh, basically put it on my heart to go where the harvest is. Okay. And there's a lot more harvest going on out there in Africa and Asia than there is in the U.S. And well, so I'm kind of like a migrant worker. I go and I collect some harvest. <laughs> well, we're glad, harvest is going we're glad on. you're in town long enough to, to uh, make this program with us. And later on, we'll give people an opportunity to find out how they can get in touch with you, okay? Right. And then this is Nathan Jones. Nathan is our newest staff member. He is our web minister. And if you go to our website and start asking questions or of any kind, uh, he's the guy that has all the answers, right? Yeah, and then I run across to your office and ask for the answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know Usually, about that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we, uh, we're delighted to have Nathan with us. And our um, topic for this program is uh, intellectualism. And I want to get into it, Dennis, by asking you, what in the world do you think the Apostle Paul meant when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and uh, there in verse 25, these words, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Well, clearly, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And, you know, the world has had some brilliant men, just uh, incredibly intelligent men and, and women over the centuries and millennia. But man does not have the capacity, no matter how brilliant, to come up with any kind of way to reconcile himself with God or to really even find out the answers to life. And there have been a lot of brilliant men that have tried and they've written long uh, philosophies and, and, and books about what life's, what life's supposed to be about, but they've never come up with the answers. God has done it. And, and it's so simple that a small little child can find the answers and know more. <laughs> a five-year-old child may essentially know more than a 50-year-old philosopher. Uh, well, I'm going to ask you specifically about some of those great intellectuals and in, right. uh, history in a moment. But first of all, uh, I'm intrigued by the statement, the foolishness of God. I mean, God is the source of all true wisdom. He is uh, uh, omniscient. How could God possibly be foolish? Can you think of an example, either one of you, the foolishness of God? <laughs> well, uh, obviously the Bible is not saying God is foolish. But I think what it, Paul is, is referring to is the fact that God's simplicity looks like foolishness to us. We look at it and we say, so you're telling me that if I put my faith in Christ because a couple of thousand years ago he died on a cross and he rose again, that I will be forgiven, I'll be justified, I will have 
my life's purpose fulfilled and, and all of these things by a simple act of faith, it cannot be that easy. It sounds mm. foolish. Sounds foolish. That's right. And, and I can tell you another example of the foolishness of God from the viewpoint of the world, and that is when God calls people to do things that the world considers absolutely foolish. For example, Abraham, a man of great wealth uh, in retirement, yeah. Uh, suddenly God speaks to him and says, I want you to sell everything you got. Get up, move. I want you to move to a place you've never been to before. Can you imagine how the neighbors must have responded when he said, where are you going? Well, I don't know. I'm just going where God leads. What's going? Or, or Noah, build an ark. Never rained, but just yeah. build an ark. Build this big boat. Uh, think of how the neighbors must have reacted. Mm. So we're talking about here the foolishness of God mm. from the world's viewpoint. From the world's viewpoint. Is wiser than the wisdom of man. Now that's a very insulting statement to intellectuals, right? <laughs> well, it shouldn't be, but it is. I mean, they, they consider you and me to be flat earth people. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, sure. we're, we're just fanatics and uh, we're ignorant people and nobody with any sophistication could ever be a Christian, could right. they? If you're smart, you, you couldn't possibly They never be a met C.S. Lewis, did they? No, I don't think so. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit uh, about these uh, characters that you have in mind. Give us some examples of great intellectuals who thought they had the answer to all the world's problems. Well, I'll, I'll do that. Let me start by saying that, you know, when you study philosophy, you pick up a few things. So, you know, as I've studied these different philosophers, I, I've learned something. I want to share with you and with the audience one of the great lessons I've learned, okay? Okay. So, you know, uh, for example, Sartre taught that action makes the man. Now, you're talking about Jean-Paul Sartre? Jean-Paul Sartre oh, okay. said that our actions really define who we are. So his idea was you do and then you become. But many other philosophers, and, and the French were, were the ones that kind of threw this back and forth, have said it was just the opposite. <laughs> that what you are becomes what you do. So in the, 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 the intellectuals of France, it was either be and then do or do and then be. But actually, there was an American philosopher that saw that whole dilemma. Yeah? Yeah. You, you probably have never heard of him. His name is Frank Sinatra. And oh. he said, do, be, do, be, do. <laughs> <laughs> So now that we've got that out of the way, okay. the young people don't have a clue what I was just talking about. They're saying, who is Frank Sinatra and what is Doobie Doo? Get, get the uh, oldies CD. <laughs> anyway, now, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of what I have discovered is, fr is from a book by Paul Johnson called Intellectuals. And, and the, the main point he was making is that if you're going to have someone tell you about how to do something, you would expect that they have a pretty good grasp on it themselves. Yeah. Someone comes along and says, I'm going to mm -hmm. teach you how to play golf. And then you say, all right, you hit a ball for me. And he swings and misses, you know, can't even hit the ball. <laughs> you think, well, I'm just not sure that you're really probably the best teacher for me. <laughs> and so his point was, these philosophers pretend to be the ones to tell us how we should live, what life is all about, and how we can best function in life if we will cling to their philosophies and believe what they teach. So he said in his, his book, Intellectuals, let's look at what their lives were like. Oh. And when you, when you read about the lives of some of the philosophers and intellectuals over the last few hundred years, it is like going through a sewer. I mean, their lives mm. were so wretched, their family lives, their personal lives, their financial lives. I mean, it, it was such a mess. And you cannot help but wonder... How could any sane person uh, choose these folks to tell them how to live or what to think? Uh, really, you could go out into a crowd at a ball game and pick 10 people at random. They'd probably have better lives and make more sense than some of these great philosophers and intellectuals. That reminds me of back in the 60s when uh, Kennedy was elected president. Uh, he started raiding Harvard University, hiring one professor after another to be in his uh, administration. Uh -huh. It prompted one leading uh, conservative uh, 
a commentator in America to say, I would rather be governed by 10 people selected at random from the New York telephone directory than 10 professors from Harvard <laughs> University. <laughs> yeah, well, that's exactly... Well, the, give us an example. All right, let, let's talk about the father of the Enlightenment was considered uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, any good philosopher knows his Voltaire and his Rousseau. Lived in the 1700s. And like most of these intellectuals, Rousseau had a, no problems at all with self-esteem. He thought incredibly high of himself. Let me just read a few quotes from Rousseau. He said, for example, no man ever had more talent for loving. He said, I would leave this life with apprehension if I ever knew a better man than me. No self-esteem problems here. Show me a better man than me, a heart more loving, more tender, more sensitive. He said, if there was a single enlightened government in Europe, they would be erecting statues to me. But in truth, he was a pretty wretched guy, Well, wasn't he? he was. And the interesting thing was, he claimed in his writings to just love people. The, the most tender, loving, <laughs> compassionate man you could ever want, you know. And, and his writings, he comes across that way, very much so, as a very tender soul. The reality was... Nobody liked Rousseau, and he didn't like anybody if you got to know him. Now, from a distance, he was great. You know, you, if you corresponded or if you read his books, he seemed wonderful. But in reality, he quarreled with everybody. And all those that got to know him pretty much despised him. He would, people that criticized him, he couldn't stand. In, toward his latter years, he thought there was a great conspiracy against him. Uh, in his personal life, in his, he, he took a lady named Teresa as his mistress. He would not marry her. Lived with her for 33 years. One of the things he said about Teresa was, he said, well, I don't actually care about her. She's just there to satisfy my sensual needs. Oh, this was the great loving man. The great loving man. He, he never took her out. And when people came to his house for a meal, she would never be allowed to even sit down. She would serve the meal and then go wait in some back room. So this is how he treated the so-called love of his life. And, of course, he had other uh, women as well. Uh, another thing about Rousseau was the fact that he wrote much about children, claimed to be the lover of kids, and just uh, in many, uh, much of uh, educational theories kind of based on some of what Rousseau had to say about children. The reality in his own life was he had, according to most counts, five children with Teresa. And in each case, the baby is born. They take the baby to an orphanage nearby and drop it off. He will not raise any of his kids. And this orphanage was so wretched that two-thirds of the babies died in their first year. And by the time they lived several years, it was like a 90% mortality rate. Nobody lived in that orphanage. And that's what he did with his kids. Now, they asked him, you know, later on when this became public and he had written so much about kids and ed education, they said, well, how come you didn't keep your own kids? And uh, he blamed other philosophers for putting bad ideas in his head. And then, <laughs> then he said, well, you know, my work is so important oh. that to have my house uh, uh, with all this noisy sounds of children, it would, it would stop me from doing this important work. So the man well, was a Well, let's take another example. Uh, uh, here's Karl Marx, for example, who's supposed to be the great uh, hero of the proletariat, right. the, the common people, the poor people, a man who would devote his life to trying to come up with a philosophy of life, a philosophy of government uh, that would provide them with the best possible life. What kind of guy was he? Well, Marx, again, now Marx, as far as I can tell, was not nearly as promiscuous as some of these others, but he was, he was a total nerd. He was desk bound. All he did was read and write. And the interesting thing was he expressed, once again, such compassion, such a zeal for the common man, for the proletariat. 
in truth, he didn't know any common people. He, he just he didn't, didn't know any. He, yeah. he didn't want to. He hung out with intellectuals. He was an, an angry man when he would have meetings in Paris uh, as an, an editorial board. They would close the windows because he screamed so much. And he just would constantly shout and yell. One man said in his conversations, his favorite expression, if he didn't uh, like what you're saying, was, I will annihilate you. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, really nice. And the interesting thing was, Marx never had a chance to express his, his fury. That is, he never became a dictator. He never really controlled much other than got involved with communist parties and so forth. But his writings abound with anger. He was an angry man, just furious. And, and in his writings, you just sense that anger. Now, when you look at some of his disciples uh, who did attain power, like Lenin, like Stalin, like Mao Zedong, they ended up killing millions. Millions. Hundreds and they of were millions. absorbing, I believe, at least part of the reason was they were absorbing the anger and the fury of his writings. Wow. One contemporary writer wrote this about Marx. Marx doesn't believe in God, but he believes much in himself, and he makes everyone serve himself. His heart is not full of love, but of bitterness, and he has very little sympathy for the human race. And that's the one thing you see among most of these philosophers and intellectuals. They wrote beautifully. They were, they were smart guys. There's no doubt about it. But in terms of their relationships with people, they got along with almost nobody. And oftentimes there were slobs. <clears throat> well, well, quickly tell us yeah. something about another one, and that is Bertrand Russell. All right. Bertrand Russell was a very interesting fella, and, and he probably had more to say over a longer period of time than, than any of the philosophers that we're aware of. In fact, he thought he was the world's greatest expert on everything, well, didn't he? He yeah. did. He wrote on everything. He wrote on <laughs> nuclear weapons. He wrote on government. He wrote on education. He even wrote articles on the proper use of lipstick and how to choose the right cigars. <laughs> Uh, everything you could imagine, mysticism, logic, China, just he wrote on everything. He was the ultimate know-it-all. He lived to be almost 100. He was born when Ulysses S. Grant was uh, nominated for his second term. He died on the uh, eve of Watergate. So, I mean, it covered a long period of time. And uh, he was the ultimate intellectual. He was brilliant. And uh, he was a great writer. He'd go out and go for a little morning walk. He'd come back. He'd write all morning with no rewrites and just, just totally fluent. So did he have a wonderful life? He had a wretched life. Uh, so knowing everything doesn't mean you have a wonderful well, life. Well, no. And here's, here's another interesting thing about, about uh, Russell. As brilliant as he was, he was totally helpless when it came to ordinary things. He couldn't even make a cup of tea. One time, his, his, one of his wives, he had several, but one of his wives went on vacation or went away, and she left him instructions for how to make tea. You know, you put the kettle on the hot plate. You know, you make the water boil. You pour it into the tea, the tea cup. And uh, he messed it up totally. He could not figure out. So I mean, he had these, all these amazing theories, but he couldn't really function much at all in real life. But probably the most... Uh, Horrific thing about him was uh, his sexual pro uh, uh, life, his promiscuity. He, he had wife after wife, uh, and in, in, with each wife, he had a set of mistresses, and then he would change mistresses every so often. He, uh, his only touch with the common man, as we've been talking about, was the fact that he would seduce maids once in a while and, and uh, female workers in the households. But he was just a, a total, uh, totally immoral individual. And really a wretched man. So his life was pathetic. He, as an atheist, he had no hope. In fact, he, he made this classic statement. He said that all of man's hopes and fears and dreams are going to be extinguished when the solar system is extinguished. You know, it's all coming to nothing. And he said, because this is true, the only foundation we could hope to build our lives upon 
is that of unyielding despair. Wow. So that, that's all you can build your life on. Well, he didn't have much uh, knowledge really about life, did he? No, he didn't. Well, uh, there's others we could discuss, like uh, Sartre, uh, the philosopher in uh, France, but we don't have time in this segment, so maybe we can at least touch on him in our next, next segment. Hello, my name is Nathan Jones, web minister with Lamb and Lion Ministries. We're using the internet to proclaim the soon return of Jesus Christ to the over one billion people who access the internet now and after the rapture. I'd like to invite you to come and check out our website at www.lamblion.com. You will find a wealth of information about Bible prophecy, gaining a big picture view into God's plan for the ages and learn how His eternal plan relates to you in the here and now. Watch online episodes of Christ and Prophecy for in-depth teachings on end-time events. Read from the library of articles covering all aspects of God's prophetic word. Subscribe free to receive the Lamplighter magazine, e-newsletter, and blog to stay up to date on current events as they relate to Bible prophecy. Equip yourself to share the good news with others using materials from our resource center. Come visit lamblion.com today. Well, welcome back to our discussion with Dennis Pollock of the bankruptcy of the intellectuals of this world. And I'd like for us to begin this segment with Nathan asking a question. How about Nathan? Sure thing. Dennis, we've been talking about the intellectuals who are the founders of our modern way of thinking. How do they compare to the way Jesus and his philosophy, how that works? Well, to me it's not just a comparison between the philosophy, although his philosophy is certainly different, but but even more important is the, the life. Amen. Uh, yes. Jesus Amen. loved common people. He didn't just say that he loved them. He really loved them. He went out and he talked to them. He talked to the woman at the well. He touched the leper and healed them. He, he spent time with these people. He would sit with the tax collectors and the sinners and he would, he would share. He would listen to them. He would, he would speak to them. Uh, these guys never did. They were, they were totally desk bound. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, for example, read 300 books a year, much of his life, plus he wrote all the time. Now think, that's almost a book a day. Yes. And if you read, read a book a day and then you wrote a whole lot more, you wouldn't have time to do much else. And that's the way most of these guys were. They were, they were so in the, in the mind, in the realm of thought, that they, they couldn't even function in the realm of relationships. They didn't function very well except for their uh, sexual promiscuity. Jesus went out, and it's interesting, he didn't write anything. I mean, the closest we have to anything true, Jesus yeah. wrote would be Revelation, you know, where he gives a dictation to the churches. But, but primarily, he was out there doing good works, loving people. Not only that, but he had the ability to make a difference. You, you, you go around and say to, just start asking people at random, how much difference has Bertrand Russell made in your life? <laughs> how much different? How has Jean-Paul uh, Sartre uh, changed your life and made life so much better for you? Well, even the, the, the devotees of these guys would have to admit if they were honest, well, you know, it's interesting to think about. But, you know, they've changed nobody's life except maybe for the worse. But Christ totally transformed lives. He healed the sick. He gave hope to the hopeless. He encouraged the people that nobody else wanted anything to do with. And so, he still transforms lives today. And he still transforms lives today. And then thirdly, he lived his morality. He didn't just talk morality. You know, uh, Rousseau, for example, constantly talked about virtue and truth, virtue and truth. But there was no virtue and very little truth <laughs> in Rousseau's life. But Christ lived it. He lived such a life he could say, which of you convicts me of sin? He was the sterling character of all of humanity, all of the ages, and even the sinners instinctively know that. You can hardly get anyone to say much bad about Christ because we recognize he had a character like nobody else did. 
Now, Dennis, you've been talking about the intellectuals, and now just clarify for me. Are you saying then that Christianity is unintellectual, like the world always claims or it to be? intellectual <laughs> or anti-intellectual? Uh, well, you know, it, actually, there was a time when I thought that, you know, as a, as a, a when young you fellow. When you thought of yourself I, as a great I intellectual. Thought my, I was an intellectual, and I thought Christians were basically dumb, <laughs> usually losers. They didn't have much else going on. Ouch. Flat and, earth uh, guys. Flat yeah. earth guys. <laughs> now, I didn't think that way long because I did come to Christ at 19, but for a couple of years before that, I did. Uh, one of the things that amazed me as I, as I came to Christ, and, and I didn't come through deep intellectual thoughts. I came through the Holy Spirit drawing me the way he does everybody. But as I came to Christ and started reading, I found that Christianity has definitely her share of intellectuals. We've, guys got, we've got guys like Jonathan Edwards, who was, who was probably far more brilliant than any of these other guys we've talked about. He was so smart that when you read his writings... He answers questions nobody has enough sense to even ask. You know, we're not smart enough to ask the question. He not only figures out the questions, he comes up with the answers. That's pretty smart. That's smart. Uh, Charles Finney was a genius. The Apostle Paul, you read his writings. This guy was a genius. And, and they, people that have studied uh, his writings just from a secular point of view have said, yeah, he, he was a genius. Uh, so we, if, what if about C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. another example. Uh, so Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, brilliant fellow. We've got our intellectuals if you want that. But the thing that draws us all together, whether you're intellectual or very simple person, we believe the Bible is inspired by God. We believe Christ is the Son of God. We believe life is found in a relationship with Christ. And so whether, you know, you come to Christ from a from perspective of being highly intelligent or not so bright, it, it hardly matters. The thing is that we are reconciled to God through Christ. But if you are smart and you're intellectual and you say, I need something to feed my mind as well as my spirit, Christianity's got it. I mean, you read the, the debates between Calvinism and Arminianism. You know, read Edward's writings and some of these guys, C.S. Lewis's writings. There's plenty for those that, that are interested in, in some of these deeper matters. But the difference, it seems to me, one of the basic differences between the intellectuals of the world and the intellectuals of Christianity is that the intellectuals of Christianity are not saying they have the answer to the world's problems. They're exactly. saying Jesus has the answers to the world's problems. They're pointing people to the Lord, not to themselves. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's the essence of Christianity, that Christ is the star of the show. He is the Son of God. He is the way, the truth, the life. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification, our redemption. He is all and all to us. I read you a statement a few minutes ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul is talking about the foolishness of God being wiser than men. He makes another statement here that's rather intriguing. He says in verse 21 that um, uh, the wisdom of God, uh, wisdom of God does not come through our own wisdom. In other words, that the world cannot come to know God through its own wisdom. Um, So how do we come to know God? I mean, what, what does that mean we can't do that? Well, to me, it's like if I took you into a house that you've never been in before, and I sat you in a chair and I said, look at that cabinet in front of you. Cabinet door is closed. And I give you a pad and a pencil and I say, I want you to write down the contents of that cabinet. Well, it wouldn't matter whether you were brilliant or as dumb as a post. You wouldn't be able to know what's in that cabinet. No matter how bright you are, no matter, you could think for 20 years, 50 years, or two minutes, the answer would still, you'd still have an empty pad. There'd be no way. The only way to know what's in that cabinet would be to go and open the door and take a look. And there are things about eternity and eternal matters you will never know by the mind. You have to experience God. And we experience God through faith in Christ. And so if all we're going to do is sit at a desk and, and think and ponder and pontificate and, and all the rest, 
but we're not going to approach God through faith in Christ and through His Word, we will never come up with the answers. The Bible says there's only one way you can come to know God. That's right. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's true, but I had something else in mind. Okay. You know what it says here in verse 21? That God is pleased through the foolishness of preaching for people to come to know Him. Yeah. The foolishness of preaching. What do you think about that? <laughs> well, since I'm a preacher, you know, I'm all for <laughs> the foolishness of preaching, and I can amen to the fact that sometimes it does get kind of foolish. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's true. And preaching, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean a guy behind a pulpit. It yeah. means a proclamation yes. of the message of Christ. So it, it could be someone sharing at a McDonald's or, or, or behind a pulpit in front of thousands. But it is the proclaiming. And, and, and really, even though this show is kind of an apologetics kind of a program, the truth is people are not going to get saved simply by reasoning. And our job is not That's just to, point, yeah. to reason mm-hmm. people into the kingdom of God. Right. It is to proclaim Christ came. He lived a perfect life. He died. He rose again. If you'll put your faith in Him, you will be forgiven. You will receive the right. gift of That's eternal life. That's why I often tell people who are afraid to do individual uh, one-on-one uh, witnessing that they say, well, I just don't know enough Scripture. I said, the yeah. most important way to witness one-on-one is tell people how Jesus has changed your life rather than doing with reason with all these Scriptures and all. Talk about the impact of Jesus on your life. Nathan, I want to ask you a question, and that sure. is, what in the world is meant, we've used this term several times and our viewers may not know what it means, what is meant by a Christian worldview? A Christian worldview is, you kind of think of it as glasses. You can put on a pair of sunglasses and if they're pink, you will see the world with a pink filter. Okay. If you put on your glasses and there's a yellow, you'll see the world with a yellow filter. You can put on the philosophers and see the world through a yellow filter or you can put the Christians and see it through the purple filter. How you see the world is the worldview. You judge your actions, your behaviors, your thoughts, and your interactions with people all based on your worldview. Well, what would be, for example, a fundamental aspect of a Christian worldview? That the world is, and all that you think about, and all that you love and adore, is centered on Christ instead of yourself. Dennis? Yeah, well, you know, when I think of worldview, I think about what have been often called the college questions. And those are, they call them the college questions because those are a lot of times college students wrestle with these, such as, where did we come from? Uh, who are we? Why are we here? Where are we going? And the, the answers to those questions are, are going to vary depending on your worldview. The secular says we are here as an accidental, uh, uh, just an accident. Uh, there's really no purpose to our life at all. We are nothing more than an animal and we're headed for extinction. If you believe that, it will affect the way you live, Mm. the way you talk. It will affect your sex life. It will affect, really, every aspect of your life. The Christian view says we came as a creation of God. We're here for one purpose, or maybe two, to know God and make Him known. And we are headed for an appointment with God where we will stand before Him and give account of our life. And to me, one of the fundamental differences between the world, all worldviews that come from the world as opposed to the Christian worldview is the view of man. All of these philosophers would argue that man is basically good and capable of perfection. The Bible says man is basically evil and can only be uh, brought toward perfection through the power of the Holy Spirit living within an individual and shaping them into the image of Jesus. Uh, I, I want to thank you so much for being with us this week. And uh, I'd like to invite you to come back next week. I mean, you got me so stimulated <laughs> here. And I'd like to uh, uh, have you talk about another topic that I know you've given a lot of thought to. You know what that is? What, what topic would that be? Well, I have in mind... 
what happens when you die. Uh, well, I haven't died, so I can't <laughs> give firsthand experience, but I'll be glad to share well, with Well, I know you've says. done a lot of study on that, I and have. you also have um, uh, come up with some uh, very interesting stories of famous people and how they face death, and right. I want to hear some of those next week, okay? okay? Well, folks, that's it. We hope you'll be with us next week, same time, same station. Until then, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, look up and be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus. 